Lord. You are muted by the host. That's me. Hello. Ah, hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. How are we doing, Vita? Can you hear me? Yes, excellent, Lampong. Please proceed. Okay, great. Well, hello, everyone. I can see all your names, but if I said hello to everyone, the hour would be run out. So hello uh, on mass. So some of you are, uh, this is the morning for some, the evenings for some, the afternoon. I'm, I'm speaking from the monks library in the uh, Atisara monastery. So I'm with Venerable Vipassi and Venerable Amrasiri. And Venerable Vipassi, can you just pan the other camera? So this is the view. Uh, yeah, so this is the view to the south. And that's our shrine that we use for the Patimoka. And if you pan it around, there you go. And so that's a very beautiful room. And uh, it's in the Bhikkhu Vihara. And that'll be me. And here we have the books. And this is Venerable Amrasiri. A very good friend. He's joining us this evening or this morning. And we go around. Lots of books. It's a lovely room. Very lovely room. We get a lot of sun from the south. So that's where we're located. Uh, I thought we could <clears throat> we could start by chanting Itipiso. Uh, most of you probably know that. So you're all muted, so you do it on your own time. Uh, Venerable Amrasiri and Venerable Vipassi will join me. We'll chant that three times, and then we'll do, uh, I think, 10 minutes of meditation. That was the plan. All right? So here we go. So turn that. Yeah. <clears throat> Pano asugato aloka vidhu anuttaro apurisadhamma sarati sata deva manusanam budnu bhagavati savakato bhagavata dhammo sandetiko akaliko ehipasipo Opanaiko pachatang vedita bovinu iti supadipa no bhagavato sawaka sango ujupadipa no bhagavatipa no bhagavat sawaka sango samijipadipa no Sango Yadidam Chatari Purisayu Niata Purisapu Kala Esa Bagawako Sawaka Sango Ahunayo Pahunayo Dakinayo Anjali Karanio Anutara Punya Ketang Loka Sadi so far, 
Start. Let's do some meditation, and then I'll I'll try to give a dhamma talk. I'm not used to zooming. This is new for me, so please uh, bear with me with my my novice uh, skills at zooming. But let's do some meditation. It's always good to calm the mind before uh, listening to dhamma. So take uh, a comfortable posture, um, and I'll give a wee, wee bit of instruction, and then we'll be silent. So oh, awaken to the way things are. This is the common thread of our practice, common instruction. So being in the space you are, listen to the sounds in that space. 
Let your listening be receptive. And notice the stillness when you listen. So the stillness isn't created, it's noticed when you just listen. It doesn't matter what the sound is. Notice the sound, but also notice the stillness of listening. Now, feel your hands. Allow the feelings in your hands to become conscious a kind of receptive attitude. And then notice the sense object changes, but the stillness is still there. If we pay attention. So noticing that stillness is a, is a beautiful thing we can do. And it doesn't depend on the object. But an object helps you to stay in the moment and notice the stillness. So feel your breathing. Feel an in-breath and an out-breath. And notice the stillness in the breathing. So there's the flow of breath, and there's the stillness of knowing. So let's do that for 10 minutes.
So greetings again. I would uh, dearly love to speak with each of you individually, but uh, here we are. Um, we're we've been in lockdown since mid-November, no mid mid mid-March, but we we're also on a winter retreat. So I think you, most of you know that the Ajahn Chah Monastery is in the northern hemisphere. Practice a winter retreat from January, February, and March. So it's a kind of self-lockdown. So we just sort of continue on. And monasteries are are very well suited to lockdowns. In fact, we've been self-isolating in some various fashions for 2,600 years, so we're, we're quite, we have quite an advantage. Uh, fortunately, lay people come and they, uh, they bring food, but we don't have any guests right now. We have uh, five bhikkhus, uh, one samanera, one anagarika, and four laymen, and that's a, it's a nice-sized community. So what to, what to talk about? Well, first of all, we all send our blessings and, and hope this time of uncertainty is uh, fruitful for you. can't be easy, something so, um, so terribly new. You've never seen anything like this. Uh, I wanted just to just talk about um, the sort of evolution of practice that many of us have experienced. Now, I think in a similar way, um, when I, well, like, like I, I, as a child, I would sometimes have um, experiences of deep silence, infrequent, but significant. And I think that's something that's not uncommon for human beings, especially those of us who are on a path that um, for some reason we, we touch something which is profoundly different. It's not the same as excitement or or success, it's something uh, profoundly silence, and, and it, it kind of stays with us. Sometimes you get that on a retreat, sometimes it just comes to you, um, and, and you can't kind of deny that experience or that whatever it was. And there's a kind of seeking in us, and perhaps we have a memory of that from childhood that we don't even know about. But in any case, I know for myself, there was this seeking of, of uh, of that, but I was always looking for it as an external experience, and I didn't realize how to get there, so I was always going somewhere to get this experience. And then in, in university, uh, I had a Danish friend who 
uh, gave me a book. This would have been, I think, around 1967, way back. Um, a book called, uh, I think, The Psychology of Awareness. I don't even remember the author. And that was the first time I heard about awareness as a, as a spiritual practice. And I thought, well, that's, that's the key, isn't it? The key to, to silence is not so much an external experience, is awareness of experience. And that's a, that's a huge shift in human consciousness. Many people don't make that shift, usually. Um, we make that shift when we begin to see the difference between me having some kind of emotional uh, reaction to something and then noticing I'm having an emotional reaction or me feeling uh, disappointed by something and believing in the disappointment and blaming someone or whatever. And the difference being then I notice disappointment as an object and that's awareness. And that's a, that is so basic to the spiritual life. So basic that uh, I, you know, when I see people who, uh, have a lot of opinions about spiritual life or whatever, but they're not aware of it. I realize they don't have that basic um, requisite of, of Buddhism. And the basic requisite is to awaken to the way things are, to know how it is. So even if you are having a difficult meditation, you know it's a difficult meditation, don't you? And, or you're having a good meditation. And that knowing is neither good uh, nor indifferent nor bad. It is something behind, and that's the that needs that that is reinforced in our in our practice again and again and again. And why is it reinforced? Because we forget. And how do we forget? Well, we just get absorbed into experience. So I found that, like as a young student and as a, as a young traveler, um, even though I had that book, and, and and it made sense to me, I would only kind of realize awareness maybe every three months <laughs> i would get lost in my experiences and then every three months i'd notice wow you're really whatever you're really upset or you're really happy you're really sad i'd awaken to the way things are so even though it was it was a simple teaching the habits of my mind the uh, compulsions of my thinking processes the the emotions which I hadn't processed skillfully and so on and so forth, they were so compelling that my attention was always out into experience, into thought, into emotion, into coming and going. But every now and then I noticed, whoa, you're really uh, restless or you're really upset. Or, and, and that awakening process, uh, the way Ajahn Chah talked about it, many of you read that, it's like the dripping of a faucet. You know, the water drips, 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 drips until it's a, it's a, it's a really powerful flow uh, of awareness or of water. And that takes a long time. That takes a long, long time, at least for me, maybe for some adepts who are, you know, really, really precocious, it doesn't. But I know when I finally made it to Thailand and my, my uh, difficulties that I had with anger or greed or whatever it was, the same difficulties we all have, I, I felt so um, pathetic. <laughs> I felt so um, uh, unable to do it. It felt so impossible. How am I going to be aware of this stuff and not react through it? And, and, and that's the beauty of older teachers that they can say to you, hang in there, keep going. This will change. Just keep, keep developing Barmi, keep practicing. And, and I was so grateful that oh, Ajahn Chah gave me the confidence to work through the very real difficulties I was facing. He, he couldn't do it for me. He couldn't say, well, you know, he had no magic formula or magic technique, 
but he could say this will work. Awareness will work. If you just stay with it, awareness will. And that was a big thing. Um, that was a very, very big thing. So that building of confidence, I think, is part of the evolution of, of anyone's practice. The, the confidence and awareness to understand and to deal with life's um, problems, but one's inner world. And, and as, you, as we work in this path, I think that confidence and awareness just becomes so powerful that it is unassailable, can't be knocked over. But in the beginning, like when I was a student, it got knocked over a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, and even though my intention was to awaken, it wasn't, it wasn't that easy. So then when I, when I um, got into the monastery and began to have a lifestyle, I began to say, okay, that's important. And I think we all do that in the beginning, don't we? We begin to clean up our lifestyles. We begin to have lifestyles which are much, much more moral, much, more, uh, much less distracted. And, and one thing that happens there, I think, for all of us is we lose a lot of friends <laughs> because we become much less uh, interesting for people who are very... Uh, externalized. We, we're not interested in shopping. We're not interested in all the things that people seem to be interested in. And we begin to develop Kalyanamitta. It's fewer, usually it's fewer people, but they're really very important. And I think the development of the spiritual life, very important Kalyanamitta. If we have two or three or four friends or a Sangha of, of friends who can always uh, model for us, the direction we should be going because sometimes our mind doesn't want to go in that direction. So the building of a community, the building of Kalyanamitta is the evolution of not only one's own practice, but the evolution of a, a culture of practice, uh, which carries you, doesn't it? Like, so if you're, if someone is going through a, a divorce or, or, or they're having a, a, like the COVID thing is really stressing them out. You have a whole community, which is saying to you, it's okay. Uh, practice meditation, how can we help you, and so on. Um, and so for me, the Kalyanamita, obviously, we're very good teachers and, and a Sangha. And then there comes a time when, 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 when the practice, you begin to have more awareness. And I found that one of the things that I didn't understand when I began to have more sustained awareness was the desire to control. So the negative emotions which I experienced, the anger and fear and and resentment and all, you know, all these different things we have as human beings, I try to control them. And I think that's a, a common part of the practice where I, I would do metta bhavana in order to control uh, anger. I would do a subhagamatan in order to uh, uh, control lust, or I would do whatever it was. But it was always from a sense of desire to get rid of. Now, it was good to do that because it gave me alternative uh, thought patterns. It, it helped. But still, the practice wasn't one of awakening to anger. It was, I have, to, I have to sort this anger out. I have to fix it. I must stop being angry. So the problem was I still took it personally. I still thought it's my anger. It's my problem. I have to do something in order not to be angry. Now, that was better than before where I'd just be angry. <laughs> that was no good at all, right? But now I was at least taking responsibility but then there was still the craving and the self-identity. I'm someone, I've got too much anger, I have an anger problem, and so I took it uh, very personally, and then I would do things, and then that was, of course, uh, good in 
some way, but it wasn't really liberating the mind from anger. And, and then, through that struggle, I, I would use techniques. And, and this is one thing that I think we all do. In the beginning, we use techniques. We do, you know, a take of uh, metta bhavana and so on and so forth. But all the time, for me, I don't know about for you, who've been practicing a while, there's always a sense of me doing something to get somewhere. And then I would go back to the teaching and say, where is that silence? I'd go back to my own experience. What was that silence about? And how does that relate to the Buddhist experience of silence or, or liberation? And then that language that the Buddha offered us, there is the, the timeless, uh, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the timeless. I'd, I'd come back to, if it's, if it's timeless, I can't, if my practice is doing something now to get something later, that's in time. That can't be it. And so all my techniques that I used, I, I saw a lot of them were me doing something now to get a result later. You know, like walking meditation. I think a lot of us, when we started walking meditation, I'd walk back and forth and I'd be determined not to think and I'd be a failure every time. I'd start at one end and I'd say, I'm not going to think and I'd concentrate on my feet and I was just trying to control the mind. I wasn't really awakening to the mind. And that, that difference took quite a while to understand. But little by little, I began to see, oh, Awareness feels like this is different than I should not be aware. That's not awareness. When I say I, shouldn't, I should not be angry, I mean, I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't be fearful, I've got an anger problem. That's not awareness. I mean, you know you're angry, you know you're fearful, but you're not really aware of it as an object, you're still the subject. And that difference, that movement towards awakening to it just as it is, is, is quite difficult. Because we don't want anger. We don't want fear. We want to be good people. And so these moods and emotions can be very, very threatening. So what happened to me was that I had some very powerful emotions I had to deal with, like any, any monk had to. But also, uh, conjoined with that, I was starting to do a lot of good works. So the, the, the surrender to the monastery, the upataka of the teacher, the... Um, uh, gratitude for what is offered to me. All of that began to build a character which could then deal better with these negative emotions. And that's a part of the practice where we build character. We build the wholesome qualities of character, the barami, um, by just being more patient in a traffic jam or being more forgiving. And, 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 and that evolution is, is also very, very slow. I found very, very slow. But slowly... Um, the, the, the balance began to be changed from one who is just selfishly always following his own moods to one who now reflects, contemplates, and begins to build character which um, embodies awareness and strengthens awareness. And that's what character building is in a spiritual life. It's not building a personality which is charming and charismatic. and It's not worldly in that way. Some people wouldn't even notice that you have a, you know, a strong character maybe. But the character we're building is not based on ego. It's not based on success. It's not based on, on showing off or something. It's based on really, really solid values which will help you be more aware, more mindful, more aware of the way things are. So one of the things I always talk about with monks or whoever is that that simple recommendation for the monks to be content with little. That was a fabulous reflection. 
that, that Ajahn Chah would say, well, this is the food that's offered. Lay people are doing their very best to offer it. It wasn't as luxurious food that I was used to, but I could see that uh, if I could go to contentment with little, it would help me a lot with greed. And so I began to contemplate that as an attitude. Now, in the beginning, I, I would say to myself, you must be content with little. You should not be greedy. But that was more ego. That was just more ego. So then I began to see the difference between egotistical judgment of greed, say, and awakening to greed, feeling the greed, and then shifting my mind to another perception. And I found, oh, now that's skillful. You know, I can do that. So the first thing was to awaken to the greed or the anger or the fear and recognize that, yeah, this is greed or this is anger or this is resentment or this is anxiety. And it feels that way. But then I could shift my thinking or my attention. I could shift it to my body. I could shift my thinking to, oh, uh, uh, the Buddha recommended be content with little. I try to be content with little. And little by little, the, the, the perceptions of greed began to be disempowered because my mind was shifting to other perceptions, other ways of viewing. But it wasn't egotistical. It wasn't like me trying to become a person that wasn't greedy. You see, so it wasn't based on becoming. It was always based on timelessness. So when I, when I awaken to something like greed or resentment, say, it's, it's a timeless awakening. I'm not trying to do something now so I'm not resentful in the future. No, I wake up and I say, oh, this is, the resentment's really strong. It feels this way. And then if my mind is thinking resentful thoughts, I can say, oh, that's a resentful thought. What if I think something else? May all beings be free from, free from suffering. So it's totally in awareness and it's totally present. And it's not about becoming. And so with that lays the foundation for uh, presence, 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 a timeless presence, and still working with, with the negativity or, or that strength evolved, I, I should say, um, then, then there comes a time where I think all of us no longer feel so threatened by the negative emotions and the, the barami and the character of awareness begins so strong that we, we can just notice these old patterns which have been there for you know, for 40 years or whatever, and say, oh, that's just an old pattern. It's not a threat. It's not bad. And I don't have to do anything about it. It just is as it is. And there, I think what happens is then you become much more curious about the knowing rather than the objects of knowing. And that movement, that movement for outwards to objects and trying to sort them out and trying to be a better person is good. It's a good thing to do. But at some point you realize, oh, wait a minute, what is anatta about? And what is the Buddha pointing to when he says timeless, not conditioned, here and now? And that language becomes a, a kind of language of curiosity. You become curious about that and you, you use your questioning mind to say, well, what is it that doesn't change? And what is timeless? And you begin to see that awareness itself is significant. You begin to be aware of awareness. You begin to be aware that you're aware. And it doesn't matter what you're aware of. It doesn't matter if your emotions are negative or positive. It doesn't matter if the weather's good or bad or indifferent. And every time you get lost into thought, into self-thought, 
you, you, and you do get lost, don't you? You know, you kind of, you kind of get the insight, but then you get lost again, and then every now and then you awaken. You awaken. And what's very important is to say, this moment of awakening is what I've been looking for. Not some experience of happiness or getting rid of happiness. It's this awakening which I'm looking for. That is the goal. And the rest will take care of itself. And if you make that the goal, that awakened mind, it will be in the, you know, you, you might have, like you might feel very, like let's say this whole virus thing brings up a lot of uncertainty. And, and, and uncertainty is a very powerful uh, state of mind. Uncertainty can be um, no threat. Uncertainty can be interesting. How can I build something? How can I make something? Fine. Uh, I want to go traveling. How will it be? Oh, it'll be interesting. But uncertainty can be very frightening. What's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to the economy? Is my business going to go belly up? Etc. Etc. Now, all of that's uncertain. Now, you can take uncertainty as an object of awareness. And when you can say to yourself, uncertainty feels this particular way, then you've awoken to uncertainty. And that doesn't mean that you don't plan or you don't do anything, but you begin to see the background is uncertainty, has a certain feeling. But the awareness, the awareness knows. And the awareness is stillness. And the awareness has no quality. It is neither certain or uncertain. It can be with, with confidence. It can be with doubt. It can be with both of those. So on a worldly level, we, we, we need to deal with uncertainty. So all of us are like the monasteries trying to figure out when are we going to have guests? And I'm figuring out, is William going to come and ordain as a Samanera from Singapore? And he's probably thinking, is it going to be safe? And Karina's is probably thinking, am I going to come and do some cooking for my hubby who's going to be a Samanera? Or whatever might happen, we don't know. We don't know. Huge. And, it, and the possibility of freedom is all the time. Whatever happens in the future. And so we're doing two things, I think. We're doing worldly dharmas. We're trying to be moral. We're trying to do good things and organize the monastery for us and trying to figure out how we can have guests coming in and be safe and so on. But all the time, our spiritual practice is primary. If you make awareness primary, everything else will do the best it can. If you make the worldly dharmas primary, you're always caught by other things, contingencies which are, which are bigger than you. And, and that's what I found with, with my own practice in the complexities I face now as a monk, or it's much less complex than your life, but the complexities I face, if I always just look at like, okay, this complexity is making me anxious, and I go to the anxiety and say, anxiety is this way, then I've taken refuge. And from that, I have to make decisions, I have to act, but I'm aware of where I'm coming from and what's happening. Now, the more you do that, the more we do this, the more the, the urgency of the negative emotions overwhelms us, and the more we begin to intuit that silence, which is always there, which I, which I tried to indicate in the beginning of the, of the meditation. Right? It's, it's no big deal, actually, but it is a big deal because our minds are so distracted. <coughs> so if, if, you, if you begin to appreciate that silence and realize it's not something you have to get, it's something you notice, and then you turn to that more and more, 
this isn't a virus cough, honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a cough. I, I'm in the workshop too much. So, <coughs> so it's actually sawdust. I'm all right, honest. <laughs> Don't send the doctors. <laughs> but if, <laughs> if you if you kind of just remind yourself all the time, whatever it's like, then you, you begin to see the wonderfulness of this silence, that it's always there, it's always available. And then the, the, the emotions don't overpower you. You still have to bear with them. You have to bear with your karma. It comes up, but you no longer believe in it. It's not a problem. It's not who you are. You're not a bad person. You're not a good person either. Personality comes and goes, but that silence does not come and go. And this is, this is the wonder of, of the, the Buddha's realization. And he pointed to that. We live in an objective world. We have objective experiences. We live in the five khandhas. The five khandhas are, are, are kind of, we talk a lot about the five khandhas, but they're not liberation. So the reason we talk about the khandhas is not that we understand them thoroughly. It's just that don't go there. Don't try to find stillness in movement. But notice that within movement, there's stillness. Huh? That within the movement of the breath and the movement of, of thought even, there's a stillness behind that. And this is, I think, what, what, my, you know, what I sense the evolution of our spiritual life is about. It's evolving towards that. And the rest will take care of itself. Because in that, if you get confidence in that, you get a kind of joy, not, a, not an emotional joy, but you, I, I say a joy which comes from confidence that, yeah, that's my real home. You come home. And what Ajahn Chah was talking about, yeah, that's my real home. I don't have to go anywhere. And yet you have to go somewhere. You know, you have to go shopping or, or whatever. But it's really not so important. It is important, but it's not so important. Because you found your real home. And that sense of finding your home, isn't that what we're seeking? You know, what we're seeking, I think, is not. What we're seeking is the end of desire. We're not seeking an object. When you, when you, when you are seeking an object... What are you doing? You're trying to put an end to desire. That's what we, I think we're seeking. And coming home to that silence is the end of desire. That's our real home, and that's where desire ends. No objective experience will put an end to your desire because it'll change. But you can enjoy yourself. You know, you can have a good meal and watch too many movies during, <laughs> during this COVID. <laughs> okay, but that's just happiness. There's nothing wrong with happiness. But the end of desire desirelessness that you find in the heart of silence and that when you get that then 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 desire becomes less important because you have your real home so i have i wasn't following the time of that beta but it feels like a half an hour is that about half an hour yes long pause. so if any anyone has any uh, questions or comments or share anything how are we going to do that? You, the people unmute themselves, or will you unmute them, or what's the plan, Bita? <clears throat> I mute them. You, you're the muter and unmuter. Okay. Yes, so how do people put up their hands? So I've allowed them to unmute themselves if they want to speak. Okay. If anyone has any questions, please. <clears throat> if you have any questions, you can raise your hands digitally. Then we will uh, put you on spotlight. 
all these faces. It's wonderful to see all your faces there, Prost. <laughs> uh, I think Thomas is unmuted. Okay. Question, treating thought as an object. Yes. Very difficult for me. Could you say some words on that? Yeah, it's very difficult for all of us. Um, well, the way I've been taught, Lumpo Semedo, you know, some very good instruction. One was to try to notice the end of thought, and and thought does end. And usually, like <clears throat> like if you're meditating, and you know your mind's rabbiting on about something, then. Um, what will happen is you may, might have a pain in your knee or uh, maybe you'll hear the sound of a robin or a car and something will interrupt your thinking and you'll, you'll awaken to the fact that you have been thinking. Now that moment, thought has stopped. And what I found, I think many of us found, that moment, I, I didn't know how to, what shall I say, honor that moment and I would quickly go into another kind of thought pattern of trying to stop thinking. Yeah. Or judging my thinking or getting rid of my thinking. Plato really heightened that, um, taught me that, was, was just, you know, when, when, when you notice that you have been thinking, that's the end of thought. Notice that moment. Just notice that moment. What does it feel like? And then, of course, you try to find the end of thought and you're thinking. It, it, it's insidious, but it does happen. So if you make a suggestion to yourself, during your meditation or, or just through life in general, make a suggestion. Uh, when thought gets interrupted, I'm going to try to notice that moment, that moment of awakening. And if you, if you make that suggestion, then you tend to actually do that. Having done that, you know, having, having, having done, done that, uh, do that a lot. Notice the end of thought. And though, notice the desire to try to get rid of thought. Because that's what keeps thought going. Another thing that, that so, so that can be like a 10-year practice, <laughs> really, because thought is so powerful and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's so driven. So also, of course, um, if thought is very driven, it's often driven by emotions. So then the other thing to do is to say, okay, to, to repeat the thought maybe once or twice. Uh, I'm having... Uh, I'm having a terrible day. It's a terrible day. I am having a terrible day. Can I actually say the thought out and then stop? And then notice no thought, no thought there. And then uh, what very helps in thought <clears throat> is a lot of body awareness. So good body awareness, especially I find the heart chakra or the stomach, uh, the whole body, get, I get, very, get very, very good at, at making the primary place of attention your body rather than your thinking processes this takes a lot of work but if you encourage like if you take that moment of 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 noticing that you're thinking and then you start to train yourself okay there's thought but there's also the object and just let that come to you you start to train your mind to move to another sense object not with a desire to get rid of thought and what I've done is I've trained myself to, and I think all of us have, to be a lot with the heart chakra and, and the stomach, because I suffered a lot from uh, anxiety and social fears and things like that. 
And, and then, because a lot of my compulsive thinking was around anxiety and, and fear and social fear and, and shyness and things like that, and very painful, a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering. And so I began to just train my mind to notice. So when there's that kind of thinking, go to the body. So that helped a lot because I, I should think my fearful thinking was probably 80% of my thoughts. You know, just a lot of it was around social anxiety. So I thought, well, if I can sort that one out, that's 80%. Kind of put a positive spin on it rather than I'm pathetic and I'm anxious all the time. And so I began to just say, well, next time you, 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 you notice anxious thinking, then go, go to your heart, feel the heart. And that began, that began to be a really good training in body awareness around a particular mood. And so the, the, the Mahasi Sayado uh, recommendation, that their technique of labeling is very good for that. You just label the type of thought, right? So I used like anxiety or whatever it was, fear. And then I make that the, the link, almost like a computer link, right? A URL to go to my body rather than go to analysis or thought. And because that was a strong habit, I developed another habit, a skillful habit, of actually going to the body, going to the body, going to the body, going to the body. And then the dominance of, of, of thought began to fall away, and I had body awareness. Now, in the body awareness, I could process the fear because the, uh, the body doesn't proliferate, doesn't create anything, it just is. And so the karma of my fears was able to be re liberated over years. It took me a long time, a lot of work of coming through the heart and coming through the body and, and feeling the anxiety in the stomach and, and, and so on and so forth again and again and again and again and again and again and again until, until now those social anxieties are pretty much gone. But it took a long, long time, right? But so the thinking was actually quite helpful because then I could get back to the mood. So if, if I can get behind the compulsive thinking and see what is the mood of the mind and then use the kind of bodily formation then I begin to unravel those knots. Watched a, a, a kind of a, a, a drama on on television. You're going to have echoes of the characters that were in the drama. That that's nothing much. It's just what the mind does. Uh, it occupies itself that way. If you if if you're an architect and you're 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 you've got drawings for a, a, a new meditation hall or something like that and you've been working on it, that's going to come up. But that's just functional thinking. That's just natural. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and you just know it's there, right? So if you're just trying to get rid of functional thinking, you'll get really frustrated. So just allow, allow thought to be what it is. It's just, you know, like don't make it a big deal. It'll settle down, that kind of functional thinking. So one of the problems, I, I think one of the first questions I asked Ajahn Chah, was a samanir, I said, how do I get rid of all this thinking? And he just answered, well, thinking is natural. It's just not, it just comes and goes. So for me, it was twofold. One was the emotional thoughts, which were driven by the, 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 the habits of fear and desire. And those I could, I could process through my body, and, and so they no longer really come up that much. But then other thoughts which come up because we've been talking about um, some something in the monastery. I don't make them a, a, a big deal, and then they just settle down naturally. So do look at Thomas. Do look at 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 the tendency of of the, the kind of reactivity of trying to get rid of thought. Meditators do that a lot, 
and see if you can just say, oh yeah, thinking about the, the architectural plans, just label it that way. It's a, it's a huge topic, it's difficult, but it's obviously very important because the thought object is what takes us away from that silence, doesn't it? Uh, yes. it, 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 it denies us that. I keep looking at the corner of my screen, I realize I have to look at the camera. <laughs> okay, Thomas? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Lampro, there's the next uh, one. Um, Shelly. Okay. Shelly. Oh, yes, hello. Ajahn. This is Shelly and White, White Salmon. Hello again. Oh, hi, Shelly. I can't see it yet, but oh, uh, anyway, yeah, go for it. Here, here. So I, here. Yeah. My husband Ray says hi. He wants you to have some boat plans. Remember, oh, he's the. Yeah. Uh, uh, the kayak plans. Yeah. I'm doing yes. furniture right now, so. Yes. Anyhow, what's, oh, there I, there what's I your question, Shelley? Um, or are you so just think, saying no? No, 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 no. So uh, you were the one that opened up my mind for uh, meditation so much in uh, saying there was nothing wrong with thought. And so here's a question. When do you think about Dhamma? Because what's come up for me over the period is Dhamma... Dhamma Vichaya. So it's not like I do a lot of proliferation, but but or we talk of Vichara, or I just I get at my understandings while I'm in meditation. Yeah, I, I I that's I think that's you know when you read Ajahn Chah's book, uh, the stillness flowing, um, you'll see that he's always questioning himself. And that's what Dhamma Vijaya is. So like for me. Um, I, I, will, I use a lot the, um, the statements around Nibbana, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless. Or I use a lot of questions around craving, bhavatana, vibhavatana, uh, kamatana, uh, especially vibhavatana, trying to get rid of. So then there's a kind of inner questioning, but it's not, it's not intellectual analysis. It's like raising the teaching to look at the mind to see what's going on. So I might raise the question, uh, uh, desirelessness. And it's not so much a question as a statement, but an important statement in Buddhism and from the way I practice. I'll, I'll raise that word up. I'll just use a word, desirelessness. And then I'll feel what I feel like, and I see, oh, I'm trying to get something. I'm trying to get enlightened or get rid of thought. And then I'll actually feel, oh, desirelessness. So it's a kind of inner questioning, but it's not just intellectual and analytical. It's a, it's a kind of an awakening to some aspect of the teaching. Um, and and, and you, I think each of us then finds our own kind of questioning. But if you're, if you're just trying to, one of the dangers there is that you have a doubt and then you rectify it with an answer. And then you can get very much just, you're always stuck in thought. You have a doubt, you have an answer. You have a doubt, you have an answer. So you have to get beyond that. Otherwise, you'll always be an intellect. So for me, the way I, I, I use Dhamma Vijaya is I usually just use a word which is kind of relevant maybe to my practice right now. It might be a mood which, I'm, which is purifying through consciousness for the last whatever few days. And I just raise that up, just the word what's that like? Or I, I, I might be um, like busy in the workshop trying to get 
my piece of furniture finished. And, and, and I'll, 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 I'll put in the word non-becoming, 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 which won't be a, a kind of demand that I be mindful and don't rush it, but I'll be non-becoming. And that will help me, because I understand myself in that, in that situation, look at the whole sense of trying to get something finished, right? So that's how I use Dhamma Vijaya. But I have, I mean, I have studied the, the you know, obviously the, the dependent origination and Four Noble Truths. So I've got a good intellectual background of what it's pointing to. And I think one of the things that happens probably in art or in craft or in, in Dhamma is you begin with a very complex teaching and a very complex mind. And then you, you work on all that. And you, 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 I struggled with what is dependent origination? Why do we talk about five khandhas? What are the three characteristics? What's this Nibbana about? And it was a whole kind of morass of intellectual um, confusion, really. And it took me some intellectual effort to make it a piece. And that was important, to make it one piece, where I, I see it's one piece, this teaching, and all these bits fit in well. And that was the kind of intellectual work I had to do. Once I had that... And I understood where it was all in place. I understood it's actually just pointing to one thing for me, non-grasping. That's all it's pointing to, non-grasping. And then the grasping takes place around craving. So the, the, the movement from complexity to simplicity for me, and I can see, say, if I listen to Lompo Semedo, he just chuckles and he says, it's like this. <laughs> it's like this all the time. And... You know, you think, what's the meta simpleton or something? Of course it's like this. But he's saying it from a very, very profound place, right? And, and so I find that too for myself. The complexity falls away. I, I, I know why the teaching is in place. And the use of Dhamma Vijaya is, is one which is relevant to my own heart. But it's not really analytical. It's more um, intuitive, awakening, language which awakens me to where attachment might be taking place. So each of us are, are somewhere in a, in a kind of spectrum of intellectual work. I find now I, I can't read very complex Dharma things. I'll start, I'll read it, and I'll say, yeah, maybe, but it's like this. <laughs> but I did, in the past, I read very, very complex things. So, so my mind now, I guess it doesn't need that. It doesn't need that complexity. It actually appreciates very, very simple things. But I, I, I wouldn't recommend not studying, right? So you need to study. But where does study then just become more accumulation of information? You don't want to be a kind of Buddhistpedia, right? We just have a lot of Buddhist ideas. You don't want to be that. Why do we have ideas? Do we have ideas to you know, lead us to enlightenment that, that are existentially important for us? And, each of us discovers that way. So Dhamma Vijaya for me is that kind of inner questioning around attachment and non-attachment, craving, letting go of craving. How's that, Shelley? Yeah, Lampo, we're at the yeah. top of the we're at the top of the hour. Are you okay? Uh, okay time. So um, shall we finish with the TPSO again? Or uh, yeah. Because I think that's probably the most common chant. All right. So very nice to be with you. Um, thank you for listening. Um, I hope I see you somewhere, uh, even if it's on a Zoom, on a Zoom session. So be well. 
all our blessings from, from the monastery. Much metta karuna to all of you. So let's, uh, as a group, let's chant itipiso. Itipiso bhagavaharahang samma samputo vichacharana sampano asugato loka vidu anuttaro purisadhamma saratisata devamanusanam puto bhagavati savakato bhagavata dhammo santitiko akaliko ehipasiko opanai Sāṅkho yati tāṅcā tāri purisāyuka niāta purisāpukala esa bhagavato sāvaka sāṅkho ahunayo apahunayo dākinayo anjali karaniyo anuttarāṅ punyāketāṅ lokāsāti Okay, how's that, Pita? Andamaya, Ovadadamagatayo, Sadu Karam Kadamase, Sadu, 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 Anumoda. All right. Be well. Stay safe. Stay healthy.